I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Matt Galloway, and this is The Current Podcast. And to the terrorist, your hate may have taken four beautiful lives and almost a fifth, but it will not win. As Canadians, we will always rise above, stronger, and united. Inshallah. Tabindu Bukhari spoke directly to the man who took the life of her daughter. Madiha Salman was killed along with her husband, Salman Afsal, their 15-year-old daughter, Yumna Afsal, and Talat Afsal, Salman Afsal's mother. The family was out for a walk in London, Ontario, when a pickup truck drove directly into them. The driver was convicted of murder, but his case was also considered a test of how Canada's terror laws could apply to white nationalists. And yesterday, a judge concluded he committed terrorism. The terrorism designation acknowledges the hate that fueled this fire, the ugliness that took the lives of Talat, Salman, Madiha and Yumna. But this hate didn't exist in a vacuum. It thrived in the whispers, the prejudices, the normalized fear of the other, All of these played their part in the tragedy that unfolded. What we do know is that the verdict will not bring back what was stolen. It will not mend the fractured pieces of our lives, our identity and our security. For us, the journey of healing continues. Dr. Javid Sukhara knew the Afsal family. He is a child and adolescent psychiatrist, former chair of the London Police Services Board. We have spoken before about this case. Dr. Sakara joins us again on the program. Doctor, good morning. Good morning. You and I spoke after the guilty verdict last November, knowing that there was still one decision left in this case, and I know that you watched the live feed of that ruling. What went through your mind when you heard the judge's decision that what happened on the 6th of June, 2021, was indeed a terrorist act? I think that um, <clears throat> it's more about what I felt in my heart than my mind in that moment. There was a a lot of emotion and I think there was a sense of relief but in hindsight I keep reflecting that this was a slam dunk case you know there shouldn't have been any surprise about this verdict but because of the ways in which uh, Muslims are consistently demonized and stereotyped we're not often um, privy to or have the luxury of, of thinking of things as a foregone conclusion so I felt a sense of relief that the justice system affirmed what we all knew, that this was a terrorist act. Um, But I also felt a lot of emotion because there's no verdict, there's no sentence that will bring back the lives that were taken. The judge was very explicit in that, in, in saying that this was a textbook example of terrorism. And I wonder, picking up on what you just said, if that... What the, what the judge said, but also what you believed was a slam dunk case, if that will help this country rethink and redefine, if I can put it that way, what terrorism looks like? I hope so. And I hope that, that just like um, this attack had global reverberations that were traumatizing, that it can 
have global reverberations that are healing because what we know is Canada is a society and that the justice said this, that is built and supposed to be built on the inherent dignity of all people. This act shook Canadians to their core. It shook me to my core. It still feels surreal and dystopian. So redefining um, the word terrorism, which has been very loaded and coded to mean something distant and foreign and, and um, associated with people like me, to, 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 to mean something related to a white nationalist actually has a very deep affirming and validating meaning that can help communities like ours heal and recognize our our place and uh, intrinsic worth and belonging in society. Like you, you use that word relief, which is a really important word. What does that mean in the community, that sense of relief, knowing, knowing that, that that designation has been applied here? So when this happened, it's just such a, such a straightforward thing. Any Canadian living in any town like London, you know, London's a place where they test things for the Canadian market. It's representative. It's a microcosm for Canada. So for people um, like myself or like anybody uh, who might have a Muslim or South Asian faith background, they were shattered when a family like this, a family we knew, could be going for a walk and murdered by a, a terrorist in a pickup truck. And so relief comes because that message, what he tried to do was say, you don't belong. You shouldn't be here. And the attack made people question that. The justice system affirming that he was a terrorist, that he was filled with hate, that he intended to do that, that he intended to divide Canadians, helps reinforce that we do belong and that we shouldn't be afraid to be ourselves. The statement from Tabinda Bakari, we just heard a little bit of it. Um, I just want to read back part of, of what was said. The terrorism designation acknowledges that hate fueled this fire, the ugliness that took the lives of Talat, Salman, Mahida, and Yumna. But this hate didn't exist in a vacuum. It thrived in the whispers, the prejudices, the normalized fear of the other. The hate hidden in plain view was normalized by the unchallenged belief that a racial hierarchy exists in Canada. What do you take from, from words like that? First of all, it's profound. And I just have to say um, that she exemplifies the grace of the family and those that we lost. I think that, that, what, that what she said in those words is a wake-up call to Canadians. It thrives in the whispers. We as a society have been built on this denialism that somehow we're intrinsically better or that we're not a place where we don't uphold people's dignity. But we know that in Canada, it's something that is normalized, that white nationalism is a, a belief that starts with the simple idea that there's foreign threats, there's foreign suspicion. And then it, um, like Justice Pomerantz said, it's these tentacles that go out um, and affect people and radicalize people. So it does thrive in Canadian society and we need to stop pointing fingers anywhere else and really hold up the mirror to the ways in which we provide fuel and oxygen to these kinds of hateful ideas. You use the word grace to describe um, how how that statement was was delivered and the words that were used. The family has said that it's important to use 
feelings of grief to create change. That again is, is an act of grace in, in the wake of an appalling event. How do you see that change happening? Well, I think that anybody who felt the pain that we did needs to channel that pain into something transcendent. Grief can be a very powerful emotion. And, and I know my own grief after this act was such a such a deep and um, visceral experience. But when we hurt, that can be metabolized into something not healthy too. It can be metabolized into the idea that one is a victim or had something done to them. And so taking healing on as a priority means not letting oneself be a victim, not letting the narrative be about what was done, but the narrative be about surviving, moving forward, making the world better, and really channeling that pain into something transformative. Do you see that in part as the legacy of this, the members of this family that were killed? I hope so. I hope so. I think when I was at the funeral, I was thinking about, you know, Perhaps there is something out of this that people will see and understand how uh, through through the legacy of this family, in, how important it is to have compassion for your neighbor and um, how important it is to really lead with love. But I, I have to say, at times, the rhetoric that continues, the ways in which parties Political parties have not come together to advance meaningful structural change. And you and I have spoken about this also, before. Yeah. It makes me skeptical. It really does. With the federal election on the horizon, with the, the U.S. election and the level of hatred um, that communities like Muslim communities are experiencing at all-time highs, it, you know, my hope does wax and wane. What would prove to, to you... Or perhaps to the next generation, because you and I also spoke about about the fact that you want your own kids not to feel that they have to fear their own Muslim identity in the wake of this attack. What would prove to them that the words that followed this terrorist attack aren't just words, but that they will lead to action that will lead to meaningful change that will address what was mentioned in that statement, the, the, the whispers uh, that exist in, in, in plain sight? Well, I think that's it's a deep question. I would hope that they, my kids, any young Muslim listening, doesn't need anyone else to reinforce or affirm for them how much they deserve to live and be deliberately, authentically themselves in their communities. But I also think that the actions that all levels of government can take really need to move beyond tokenization. They need to move beyond um, votes pandering and think deeply about what it's like when your humanity is under question. I think um, there's a lot of, of back and forth and, and political posturing, but these young Canadians who watch this happen, they will hold their decision makers accountable and they will make sure that, that, that there isn't just words out of this, but that there are meaningful efforts to build cohesion and not let this terrorist win. Javid, I'm glad to talk to you again. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. Dr. Javid Sukara is a child and adolescent psychiatrist, former chair of the London Police Services Board. 
Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. From the outset, as I mentioned, this case has been seen as a test of Canada's anti-terrorism law. My next guest says it will also have implications for future investigations. Jessica Davis is president of Insight Threat Intelligence, a former CSIS analyst. Jessica, good morning to you. Good morning, Matt. When you read or perhaps listened to that judge's decision yesterday, what went through your mind? My initial reaction was one of extreme relief. Um, it's one of those, when we look at this case, it is a textbook case of terrorism. And I think many of us, you know, terrorism experts looked at this and said, well, we really hope that the judge finds this because to find otherwise would really question or raise a lot of questions about our terrorism legislation, our judicial system, etc. So the relief was palpable, I think, from people who are, who are watching this kind of thing. What does that mean, a, a textbook case of, of, of terrorism? Because to... Dr. Sakara's point, in past, um, th- that has not been a luxury afforded to Muslim communities. They saw it as a, as a textbook uh, case, a slam dunk, but weren't sure that that would be seen within a court of law, for example, because of, of, of past uh, cases. Yeah, and I think that concerns about bias in our judicial system and our police force are justified. Um, there's a lot of cases in the past that could have constituted a terrorism offense, particularly I think about the Quebec mosque shooting, um, that were not charged as a terrorism offense, that we didn't see any conversation around terrorism other than some some public statements at the time. So in this case, if you take an unbiased look at the criminal code definition of terrorism, this case is textbook. It was driven by a desire to create fear in a particular community. It was driven by a very clear, if sometimes muddled ideology, but a very, very clearly ideological position. And those are two key components of terrorism offenses in this country. So looking at this from an unbiased perspective, this absolutely had to meet the definition of terrorism. Is your sense that that definition is being applied more broadly now? Last fall, a young man was successfully prosecuted for terrorism in a misogynist attack uh, in a spa. We've also seen terror charges laid recently against people accused of, of being involved in, in neo-Nazi groups. So is it, are prosecutors and police taking those ideologies more seriously than in past and, and more seriously in the context of terrorism than in past? I think we're definitely seeing a change in how terrorism is perceived amongst law enforcement, security services, and prosecutors in this country, and it's a welcome change. I mentioned a minute ago the Quebec mosque shooting. You know, that is the kind of thing that should have been charged as terrorism. Why why wasn't it, as you understand it? There's a lot of complexities around, you know, what charges get brought, so it's difficult to say specifically. But I think at the time that that occurred, police... And our security services in general were reluctant to see what we now call ideologically motivated violent extremism as a form of terrorism. There was a bit of a denial that this kind of activity could rise to the level of terrorism. That has changed really significantly in the last, I'd say, four or five years um, with the charges that you mentioned. 
And I think part of that is that in our law enforcement and security services, there have always been people who saw this kind of violence as terrorism and were arguing that this definitely fit the definition of terrorism and should be treated as such. But there was also some bias, I think, if we can be really honest about it, in that community that was reluctant to see, frankly, white people perpetrating terrorism. Mm. A member of the Assal family said uh, after this ruling that he believed this decision would offer, and perhaps this speaks to what you were just saying, would offer safety and future to other communities, not just Muslim communities, but black and Jewish communities as well. What do you think of that? I think this case is so important, and, and, the, and the incel case that you mentioned a minute ago is so important because it demonstrates that police have now successful investigative strategies for dealing with this kind of terrorism and that those strategies can lead to successful prosecutions. Without successful strategies like that, police can become you know, rightly reluctant to pursue these kinds of charges. So this sets a very important precedence um, investigatively and legally. It was interesting. In reading the judge's ruling yesterday, something leapt out at me, and I just want to read it to you. It is too simplistic to draw a straight line of causation between the offender's actions and what he read on the internet. But the offender drew much of his rage from internet sources, which he repeatedly accessed in the days and moments leading up to this attack. The tentacles of hate can reach a broad audience when they are merely a click away. What do we do about that? Well, I disagree with one piece in that statement, which is that the ideas are driving the hate. I think instead, it's better to think about it as the hate was finding an outlet in the ideas. And this puts the problem in a different perspective. A lot of our ideologically motivated violent extremists are driven by hate, anger, fear, social isolation. They're finding outlet in extremist content. There's a couple of options that we have for this. One of them is to try to take down all extremist content, but I'd probably don't need to explain how difficult that would be and how implausible that is as an actual strategy. We can try to limit it. We can try to restrict access to things like terrorist manifestos, which I think is a good idea. But but seeing this as the solution is not, it, it, it's not a solution to the terrorism and extremism problem. We can also significantly expand surveillance to try to proactively identify people who might go on to commit violence. But the number of people who are consuming this kind of content is in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, and only a very, very small number of them will go on to commit an act of terrorism. So again, that's not a great solution either. We can also accept a particular level of terrorism, but that's not a satisfying solution for anybody who's lost a loved loved family member or community member in a terrorist attack and not one that I would advocate for either, which leaves us with the much harder and longer term solution, which is to build a society and a system that under that addresses or begins to address some of these underlying causes of hate and fear. And that is a very long term prospect. It speaks back to what Tabinda Bakari said that that this hate didn't exist in a vacuum. It thrived in the whispers and the prejudices and the normalized fear of the other. I mean that can be online, but that can be, as they say, in real life as well. Yes, and I think that that was a really Im important and salient point when we think about people who are radicalizing and potentially mobilizing to violence. We're all, most of us know people who have some form of extremist ideas, often driven by fear or concern, fear of loss, you know, the, this, the sense that their, their position in society is being threatened. And we all need to accept that that's 
something that we need to be aware of and try to work to reduce the social isolation of those people and try to bring them back into the fold because it's the whispers that really drive the extremism. In the meantime, your belief, just finally, is that, I mean, I said that this is a test case, that this case, having passed that test, will 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 change how law enforcement deals with, with incidents like this in future. I think the change has already occurred. Um, I think what we saw was proof of their new approach to this kind of thing. I think the real test, though, will come with cases that are less clear-cut, where there's less overwhelming evidence of the terrorist motivation and when they're actually in the preemption stage, when they've they've stopped someone ahead of time and there's no clear event that we can point to at the end. Jessica, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Matt. Jessica Davis is president of Insight Threat Intelligence and a former CSIS analyst. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.